This is episode 16 of Full Throttle, the Presidio Group's automotive industry podcast. I'm your host, Jason Stein, Presidio's Managing Director. On a monthly basis, Full Throttle serves as the industry's meeting point for great conversations with leaders across the automotive world. We did learn as we went the benefits of scale. We under, we made a few mistakes we learned from and created a strategy around the size and the type of market we wanted to be in. Uh, the campus strategy of having you know three to five dealerships per market, uh, evolving into how do we scale from a personnel, marketing, uh, and inventory perspective. So there was a plan behind it, but we, we continued to adjust it as we went and learned for sure. There's a quiet revolution of a dealership group taking hold in Charlottesville, Virginia. The movement is all about employee retention and employee buy-in. It's focused on technology and new solutions. And it's run by a fourth-generation auto dealer who, over the last decade, has ensured that team members are happy and guests are being served. Carter Myers Automotive is quietly expanding into a powerhouse of a business engine in its corner of the country. And Liza Borchis is the captain at the wheel. She's outspoken, attentive to market changes, and not afraid to make her voice heard in important circles. And the proof is in the performance. In the last 15 years, the dealership group has grown from three stores to 23, including a 35% increase in the company the last few years, with several larger acquisitions as Carter Myers bought platforms instead of single stores. And all of this expansion while offering employee ownership, managing partnerships, and with a values-based hiring process. The formula has been a good one. But the results are not just internal. Liza is also willing to be in the mix on big things. If electrification is coming, she wants to be in the middle. She's been bullish on electrification and has been one of the louder voices in the industry. She sits on the board of Plug-in America, saying yes to being a national representative for the dealer body. And she's active with NADA as well as with technology, continually pushing her team to consider new retail tech and solutions that will improve efficiency. She believes that her stores are creating technology to serve what the customer wants and also innovating and thinking ahead of the consumer. So what's the pulse that she's feeling today? And what does this year look like from the Carter Myers perspective? Today, it's her story on Full Throttle. I'm Liza Borchus, and this is Presidio's podcast, Full Throttle. She's a fourth generation retailer with experience really growing an organization exponentially and a people-focused approach to start off with. She's one of our favorite people. It's great to see you, Liza. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Give me a little bit of the lay of the land. Where, as we close out a very adventurous year, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's been a lot of fun for you as well. Uh, where do things stand? Uh, you've, uh, I mentioned at the beginning, growing your dealership or your organization exponentially. You, you do all kinds of things. You offer employee ownership, managing partnerships. You have a values-based hiring process. And amazingly, you've grown from three dealerships to 20 in the last 15 years. Where are we Actually, as we close up this year? 23 now. 23. Uh, <laughs> I think the last three joined us this past year. And, you know, you said it's been an adventurous year. I think it's been an adventurous last, you know, three or four years in our industry. And we are at a point where things are starting to settle a bit. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But, you know, for us at, at CMA, 
Um, the last couple of years have been the largest growth uh, that we've had in our company. It's been very consistent since 2005 when we uh, started slowly buying some stores, kind of averaging one per year. And, and we had some what I would call somewhat cautious growth. But the last couple of years, we um, had about a 35% increase in our company with several larger acquisitions. For the first time, buying groups versus just single stores. And uh, we're at a point right now where we are we're consciously paying attention to what's happening in the marketplace, obviously along with everybody else, what's going on with our inventory and day supply. But some of the other things that are factoring in right now is when you go through a large growth period with acquisition, you've typically made a lot of commitments to facilities. And so we've got, you know, three plus years worth of a a facility commitments based on the different dealerships that have joined CMA the last handful of years. So that's a, a big focus uh, with the cost of money having gone up, the cost of supplies and, and everything in the building space has significantly increased. Um, we're just needing to make some adjustments, make sure we're making smart decisions on what the future of our dealerships needs to look like while also complying with our OEM requirements continuing to invest in EV infrastructure uh, as both required and needed. Uh, so, you know, we're we're being very conscious right now of any additional um, commitments that we're taking on because we've still got a lot to fulfill based on the growth we've had the last two years. Yeah, a lot of work to do and a lot of subjects there to dig into. But I want to go back to what you said about growth. Was it your ambition to grow exponentially? Was this always been the plan? Uh, since about 2010, uh, that was when my dad and I started transferring the ownership and really creating a common vision of both where he saw the company going and where I did. And we did a, a you know a year or two of work, just making sure that he and I were aligned so that he felt confident passing over the reins to me. Mm. Um, right about that time, you know, 2008 had scarred a lot of dealerships. Uh, there were a lot of people that were you know not sure they wanted to go through something like that again. And so we started getting acquisition opportunities. Um, it was also a moment in our company where we started sharing our story about being an ESOP and that every associate in our company has ownership. That was something that was only an internally discussed idea for the, the previous 20 years. Um, so that was an attractive um, option for people looking to sell. They really liked the idea that they could sell their company to a group and then their associates, their employees would become owners in that company. So that that was, a, I think, a pretty neat thing that we started really focusing on. So it was a conscious decision to begin to grow our company. We did learn as we went the benefits of scale. We, under, we made a few mistakes we learned from and created a strategy around the size and the type of market we wanted to be in. Uh, the campus strategy of having, you know, three to five dealerships per market. Uh, evolving into how do we scale from a personnel, marketing, uh, and inventory perspective. So there was a plan behind it, but we we continued to adjust it as we went and learned for sure. The ESOP model, as you said, was discussed internally, but never really um, outwardly facing. What was that pivot point? Why? Uh, it was really when I started to get to know the company and I kept asking my dad, I'm like, that we have this wonderful thing called an ESOP and our own associates didn't even really understand the value that they had in the stock in the company. Now, part of that was because our company hadn't grown a lot over the previous 20 years. Mm -hmm. So they were getting, you know, some small increases in their stock, but, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. 
Well, we decided that it really needed to be the, the foundation of what our company was built on, that every person came to work every day as the owner of this business and changing the mentality of every single person within Carter Myers Automotive. And then once they saw, as we acquired more stores and grew and their stock started going up exponentially along with our growth, it really hit home of what the value of being a part of an ESOP meant. And so, I mean, last year, our, our, our stock price went up 30%. And that certainly outperformed the market last year. Um, yes. And we've got, we'll have our second ESOP millionaire retire this year. And he started with us as a technician when he was 17. And he'll retire with somewhere in the range of $1.2 million of stock that he didn't put a dime in, but he put a lot of hard work. Wow. What a cultural shift that would uh, result in. Wouldn't it? Yeah, it was a it was a big deal for us around the year of 2011 that we made that shift into focusing on what our ESOP meant to the company and ownership. It was a big deal for us. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, you mentioned a couple of um, items that are uh, you know trends that you're grappling with. Let's talk uh, electrification. Where where do you sit on that subject? And you mentioned your three-year commitments in some cases to facilities, and obviously that's all rolled into it. What's your point of view on electrification? So Jason, I've, I've been bullish on electrification and I think been one of the louder voices in our industry uh, being very positive and, and pro-EV. I currently sit on the board of Plug in America. I'm the one uh, national representative for the dealer body. NADA asked me to sit on that board. Um, and I've been very involved with our OEMs around some of their strategies, as well as legislation um, on the state level here in Virginia. Now, I see all of the challenges with EVs as well, but I do believe there is a important place for them in our future and in our industry. And what we don't want and what I've been really fighting and, and giving a voice to is that dealers are a critical part of the solution to the direction of EVs in this country. If we want to have any sort of mass market share, if we want to have pro proper servicing solutions, and we want to have trusted advisors for our consumers to go down this path, dealers and the franchise model system is the best partner in this journey. Now, what makes me sick is there was an article yesterday morning that said, and I believe it was in the Washington Post, it said electric vehicles are hitting a roadblock, car dealers. Hmm. And it was an awful article. It was, um, the narrative was very, uh, was incorrect. They had a couple of anecdotes in there, some of which I believe are quite old. And it was disturbing to read the article. Um, that is exactly the type of press we cannot have in this industry. I am sure that there are dealers right now that are not happy that EVs have a larger, uh, uh, longer day supply sitting on our lots. That is a real factor right now, but there are so many things that go into EVs being uh, the right size market share of our industry, and we have to be a part of that solution and that conversation, and we need to be at the table. So I, I am all in on being a part of the solution, Jason. I My husband drives an EV, has for four and a half years. I drive a plug-in hybrid. I want to make sure that we know what our consumers may be going through, that we can speak intelligently to this. So uh I, I I have a I could talk to you for an hour about all my thoughts around EVs. So tell me where you want to so, go. <laughs> so is it a, is it a marketing problem? I believe, and Toyota I think has the the smartest strategy, but didn't originally communicate it well enough. Consumers, anytime there's a major shift, like moving from an ICE to an EV, 
there's a pathway and it doesn't happen overnight. Having plug-in hybrids and hybrid options, I remember Toyota like four years ago shared with me, they said, we want to be able to pull consumers slowly through the journey. We're mm-hmm. going to first take our all of our ICE vehicles and make them mild hybrids. And then maybe we have some plug-in hybrids that they then move to, and then we put them in an EV. There are going to be some customers, the early adopters, they're going to go all EV. But the majority of consumers need to, like most change in life, when you look at change leadership and change management, there are steps that have to happen. And what I believe has occurred in the last couple of years, our administration and and government doesn't have all of the facts or the right data, and they've kind of gone all in on EV instead of understanding what are all of the pieces of this puzzle that can be put together, and how do we not just put all of the dollars, the tax credits, and the investment in one space? Um, and they need to have more voices at that table. Um, then I think what happened with the Inflation Reduction Act, I, there was some, you know, I, the day that that came out, we saw our EV sales drop. The day right. that people got confused about tax credits and didn't even understand who qualified, what cars qualified, our, our sales went down immediately. Yeah, right. You you mentioned um, an element there that I want to focus on. When I saw you at NADA a few years ago. You talked about... Um, really being the voice of the dealer. And you've shared with our colleague, Amy Wilson, that uh, you really enjoyed how Mike Jackson, former AutoNation CEO, was a voice for the dealer on, you know, continually. And of course, you know, used many platforms in order to um, make that case for dealer issues. Does, do we need more voices for the dealer on a national level? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think NADA is an important voice, but can't be the only voice because there are certain um, areas that they're going to focus on in our business. And one of the most important things when we talk about the diversity of voices that we need speaking up and sitting at the table, we have um, such a wide range of types of dealer groups around this country. We've, of course, got the publics and and these large groups that have one perspective. We've still got a lot of single mom and pop stores that have an important place in a lot of our smaller and more rural communities in particular. And then we've got medium-sized dealer groups, which I would I would put us in that category, um, that get some of the benefits of the, of the small single point steel dealer, but also some of the scale of, of the larger publics. And we really need to have all perspectives there. We, it, you know, Mike Jackson was a great spokesperson because I think he did have a variety of experiences that in his background that he was able to speak to, and he didn't come out just speaking about what's best for AutoNation. So I think that's what we've got to do is we've got to have voices who are looking out for what's best for the industry. How do we make sure everybody's properly represented and everybody's able to contribute in a way that's best for the consumer? Because that's why we're all here. Do you worry about the long-term sustainability of the franchise system? Yes. Not because I don't think it's the best system for our industry. Mm-hmm. I worry about it because of the narrative on articles like what I just mentioned in the Washington Post right. yesterday that have inaccuracies in it. And what I worry about is that the, the franchise system is going to go away before people understand the benefit that it brings to consumers. And it's going to be too late when they realize, wait a second, I now no longer have an advocate for me that's that is is going to pay attention to my needs, wants, and expectations in a car buying and servicing and leasing experience. So that's what worries me the most is that we're going to the, the franchise system is 
could be damaged in a way that people don't understand the value till 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 it's gone. And how about the threat of direct sales? I'm sure you think about that on a regular basis. Yeah, you know, I I, I don't believe that there is a such a benefit to direct sales that we're going to see that be the reason that the franchise model goes away. Most of the OEMs that you talk to, while they would like to control the franchise system and the dealers and have everybody be more cookie cutter and process oriented, um, I don't, most of them don't want to do this part of the business themselves. We've got great relationships with so many of the OEMs. I do believe that we in fact, I was just two days ago in New York having this conversation with somebody who's head of one of our OEMs. When there is trust between the retailer and the OEM, really good things can happen. We've seen that with several of the OEMs that we currently represent. The problem is they're not all that way. And so when there's a lack of trust, that's when dealers start building up the wall of franchise laws. It's when the OEM starts putting in these controlling programs that don't allow dealers to do what they do best and take care of their associates and their customers and have a seamless integrated experience. And so how we get to a point where we can have trust with all these OEMs, Jason, if you can figure that out, you will be a billionaire and we will all love you. <laughs> Not that we don't already. <laughs> uh, you've been at the forefront of um, technology in your stores. And in fact, you also invested in uh, uh, dealer in, in dealer fund to help dealerships stay on the forefront of evolving technologies and really help the industry. And I think when we had our chat at NADA uh, a couple of years ago, you, know, you said that from the stage during the super session of how important technology is because basically you want ideas on, on how to evolve your own stores. That means more than just hiring an IT guy, right? Yeah, for sure. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy around tech and uh, stores of the future. This might sound a little odd, but my philosophy is that technology should not be the star. It needs to work so well that it just is behind the scenes, giving us a seamless process for our consumers and our people are the stars. Technology is there to support them in making a more efficient, more transparent, and more effective process. I think so often we think that technology is the solution and that technology, uh, this new tool or this new partner is going to be the, um, the, the you know, bullet that we need to solve a problem. And technology, I don't believe, is the solution, but having the right technology that integrates well, that your people are well-trained on, that allows for this efficient, effective, transparent process is what we're going after. There's been so many new ideas and tools in the auto industry that we get excited about and we grab. And what we what we don't take the time to do is to say, how does this fit in with the with what the customer experience is that we're trying to provide in our dealership? So the first thing we always ask our team when they say, well, go look at this, or we need to adjust this, or we need to change this partner. Okay, what problem are we trying to solve? Let's first yeah. say, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? Because we can get excited as car dealers. I mean, we're like squirrels. We just, oh, that looks great. Let's buy the next <laughs> new thing. So, you know, I, I think technology is an extremely important part, but it is not the star. The people are the star and we need to have technology that they can use well and give the customer experience that we expect. 
Well, and it's developing new products while addressing a changing consumer or changing consumer expectations, right? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times um, we 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 believe that we're creating technology for what the consumer wants, but oftentimes the consumers don't know what they want until they have an experience that is great. And they're like, well, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. And so we do need to be innovating and thinking ahead of our consumer and saying, okay, what do we want that experience to look like? So that when they come in, they're wowed. I'm like, yes, that was the experience I wanted. If we wait for them to say, I want to be able to buy a car online and hit these buttons and have each of these steps happen for me, we're we're behind the times by the time we're hearing that as a, yeah. as a dealer. Yeah, that's true. Buy, sell market. What's your view on it today? And by the way, are you in the market for more? I, I don't think you are based on what you said at the opening. Well, I mean, we're always in the market because there are certain opportunities that are only going to come up once in a generation. Mm-hmm. And so we we have very clear expect or clear you know goals within our company as far as if X, Y, or Z were to come available, we're ready to move. But we have looked at more deals in the last six months that we've said no to probably than ever. And it's not that we don't want to grow. Um, the market is starting to come down a bit. I think profits are going to begin to soften. We've got sellers out there in the marketplace that are still trying to use the last three-year average. Um, We've got really need to pay attention to what our facility commitments are and the EV infrastructure commitments that need to be made with every acquisition. It's also a little hard to swallow when you look at the cost of money today versus where it was a couple of years ago. We we were looking at a deal pretty seriously the other day. I'm like, okay, the interest payments on that compared to... And you're like, oh, this is... But we've got to get over that. That you know, the reality is we're not going to be going back to rates as to, to where they were a couple of years ago. We we feel incredibly fortunate the acquisitions we were able to make during that time frame, and now we've got to adjust our thinking. So we are certainly still in the market, um, but we are we're going to watch over the next year and make sure that we can potentially get to a point where sellers are a little bit more realistic, um, or at least have a year of data that might offset some of the averages. And honestly, I think business is going to be harder in the next two years, and there are going to be people that want to get out because it's been easy. So yeah. there, there's there's going to be plenty of opportunities out there. Our strategy has not changed. If it's the right brand, right market, right location, good fit for our culture, we're ready to roll. Geographically, where where would you be interested? So we are uh, based out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Our furthest store will be opening a new Honda Point in Lexington Park, Maryland in 2024. And that will be just under three hours away from our nucleus. Uh, Right now, two hours and 15 minutes to Martinsburg, West Virginia. So we're slowly expanding. We used to try to say a two hour radius around Charlottesville, but now we're starting to include some Maryland, West Virginia, North Carolina, because we have a really strong bench of people who believe in our culture and know our values and are going to allow our foundation to grow. I didn't feel that way a few years ago when we were still trying to keep it geographically tight, Um, but we've got a fantastic team. So if we've got opportunities, you know, within probably a four hour range of Charlottesville, mid-Atlantic region is where we're focused right now. Your headwind prediction for next year, what are you looking at? Where's your where where's your purview on on you know what's to come i think we still have an opportunity to uh have a very strong year and i know we have an opportunity to have a very strong year in 2024 um you know some of the basics that we're going back to focus on is really diving into customer engagement on the phone online in person because we just believe that some of our skills have gotten a bit I don't know if lazy is the right word, but it probably is. 
Um, so really diving into looking at the cost of every opportunity and the skill sets that our teams have to properly convert and engage with those customers. That's number one. Second area, fixed operations. We have done a tremendous job uh, growing our fixed operations the last couple of years, as have most dealers, but we've been outpacing even what we're looking at as industry averages. That's going to set us up well uh, into 2024 and beyond. Um, the area that we uh, still have a lot of work to do is in used cars. Um, as our new car inventory is coming back, we know we're going to have a stronger source of used cars just because of our trade percentages. And uh, that's going to be a positive over the next couple of years until we start getting lease returns entering back into the market. You always tell it like it is, which I love. And uh, what a pleasure to catch up with you and hear your thoughts on on not only where we are today, but where we're going to go tomorrow. And most importantly, bad reporting that's out there <laughs> that we'd like to fix. <laughs> It would be great if you wanted to write an article uh, to the Washington Post in response. You could be one of many that I'm encouraging. <laughs> right. Just an, just an op-ed uh, rebuttal. Yeah. Yes. Liza, it's so good to be with you again. Thank you for being on the program. Thanks, Jason. Thanks again to my guest, Liza Borches. And thanks for listening to Full Throttle. Come back to us later in the month for our next interview on this platform. And suggestions, you can email me at jstein at thepresidiogroup.com. And to learn more about the firm, go to thepresidiogroup.com or follow us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.